Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 88 of the Forge of Freedom. Uh, today for Monday, Gunday, first of all, it's it's the new year, so happy new year to everybody. And uh, we're going to chat. I've got, as you can see, if you're watching the video or by watching the podcast by video, I've got Mike Uli back in the studio. Today, we're going to chat about a little bit of the news, just provide a brief update about things that are going on in the Second Amendment world. But then we're also going to talk about the rules for safe gun handling, because uh, with Christmas just a week ago, I'm sure that lots of folks got firearms for for Christmas or gave firearms as gifts. And we want to make sure that people, if they don't already know the firearms rules uh, or the rules for safe gun handling, that they know them. And if you do, uh, this can act as a little bit of a refresher so that people can be responsible gun owners. Uh, But before we get to that, like I said, we want to talk a little bit about the news and kind of where we are, what's going on with the Supreme Court, what's going on in some of the federal circuit courts, uh, just to to provide a little bit of a a refresher since we haven't talked much about that recently. Uh, So, Mike, first of all, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex, and uh, Happy New Year. Uh, so, Mike, I guess let's start out. Uh, what's going on? I know we talked a little bit before we hit the record button here about Illinois. Is that where you want to start um, there in the Seventh Circuit? Yeah, and maybe we can – we're in the Seventh Circuit. Maybe we can just talk about the new year here. Maybe we can talk a little bit about super-duper 50,000-foot level, where we've been with the Second Amendment, and in particular the Supreme Court, I think, because we've got the Fifth Circuit, the Seventh Circuit. We've got all these – Ninth Circuit, which is a horrible circuit. We've got all these cases out there, and we can talk all day about those. But let's just kind of keep in mind uh, where we've been. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court gave us Heller, which basically said, hey, the, the Second Amendment isn't a a collective right. Um, it's actually an individual right, and that case primarily focused on Dick Heller's right to have a firearm in his home in Washington, D.C., uh, subsequent to that, we got McDonald, and McDonald really said, "Hey, you know, Heller was applicable to the federal government because it was a federal enclave. Washington D.C. is where the violation of the Second Amendment occurred. But we want you to know it actually applies to the states and localities and cities. That's what McDonald decided. So the Second Amendment is enforceable against the states and local governments. Uh, subsequent to that, we got in several years, many years, we got Bruin." Recently, And what Bruin did, this is a U.S. Supreme Court case, it said, listen, the right to keep and bear arms is not limited to just your, you know, your castle, your home. It, it talks, the Second Amendment talks about the right to keep and bear arms. The bearing portion means you've got a right to carry a firearm out there in public for self-defense. Um, and after Bruin, we had, unlike Heller and McDonald, after Bruin, we have had this explosion in Second Amendment litigation at the lower federal court level, and then those have to filter up through the intermediate appellate courts, the federal uh, appellate courts, and then ultimately get to the Supreme Court. And right now we have some cases that 
the Supreme Court. Well, actually, we had the Rahimi case, uh, which you've talked about um, previously. We've talked about previously, both you and I. The last thing that happened in that case, I think, of significance was oral arguments. I wasn't, unlike some other uh, commentators out there, I was not as optimistic about what I heard from the Supreme Court as I was when I read the briefs before oral argument, because I'm a little concerned about how they're going to uh, define dangerousness and these analogies that they're going to have to find w when the uh, Constitution was ratified. Uh, but anyway, we'll see what happens in the Rahimi case. Yeah, Go ahead. and I'll, I'll mention Rahimi before you talk about some of the other things um, going on in the federal circuit courts and also at the Supreme Court. Uh, part of the analysis or the guidance that, that the Supreme Court gave the lower courts in Bruin was that there is no interest balancing test. There is no strict scrutiny, no intermediate scrutiny, no rational basis when you're looking at a Second Amendment challenge. You, we, the courts were instructed uh, to look to the the Second Amendment itself, the text of the Second Amendment, the original meaning of the Second Amendment, the Second Amendment, and if the Second Amendment is implicated, if the text is implicated by the government's uh, proposed restriction, then the government has the burden of showing that there is a text, history, or tradition that would support that regulation of the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. And to do that, they have to look back to 1791 when the Bill of Rights was ratified. And then only to later history to confirm their understanding of the Second Amendment at the time it was ratified. And one of the ways that they do that is by analogy, right? So if, uh, for instance, in Rahimi, uh, the, the Rahimi case, and we talked about this a little bit, like you said, uh, in a previous episode, which I'll link to in the show notes, but that challenges a uh, prohibition on people who are subject to a domestic violence restraining order under 18 U.S.C. 922 G8. People who are not convicted of a crime. Correct. It's a civil uh, protective order, which means that the protective order was issued only after a preponderance of the evidence, theoretically. Um, there's some question about that process itself, but that just means that more likely than not, the court thought that they were a danger to the, to somebody else. Or it could uh, be somebody simply acquiescing to the domestic violence restraining order and not even appearing taking place. Correct. So clearly, uh, federal statute prohibits somebody who is subject to one of these domestic violence restraining orders from exercising their right to keep and bear arms. Uh, so it's a prohibition. It implicates the Second Amendment. Uh, and at least it does in this case, because there's no question that Rahimi is part of the people referenced in the Second Amendment. So the question then for the court is, is there a text history or tradition of prohibiting people like Zaki Rahimi from possessing a firearm? And if you look to the founding era, the really the only two analogies are what's called an affray, which is a criminal act and surety laws, which were not permanent deprivations. So they're not exact fits. They're not strict analogies to what's going on with Rahimi. So the question here is, how close does the analogy have to be, right? And uh, based on what you heard in oral argument and what I heard in oral argument, the court is not really going to stick to a strict analogy. They're not going to look for an exact historical twin, which the court said in Bruin they don't have to do, but the question is, okay, if it's not a historical twin, how close does it have to be? 
Does it have to be a cousin? Right. Or does it just have to be of the same, uh, another human being? I mean, you know, how close does the analogy need to be? Yeah, for instance, uh, here the, the court seemed to lack on to, uh, latch on to this concept of dangerousness. Oh, they're uh, the, just generically uh, people who have been dangerous have always been prohibited. Well, that's a pretty loose analogy. Uh, and okay, well, if dangerous people have been prohibited by what standard of proof? Right. I mean, because here we're looking at uh, preponderance of the evidence. Uh, you could lose your constitution, your individual right that's protected by the Constitution to keep and bear arms, a fundamental right. The court, if they uh, find in favor of the government upholding the constitutionality of 18 U.S.C. 922 G, is saying that eh, preponderance of the evidence is enough to deprive you of your individual right. So th this will be an interesting case. Like you said, I'm not as optimistic about it as a lot of the, the gun commentators have been on, on the interwebs, so to speak. So that's Rahimi. Uh, what else is going on, Mike? I know we talked about Range, uh, Cargill, and a few other cases. Well, we got the bump stock ban. That case is in front of the Supreme Court, which mm -hmm. you mentioned, whether that's going to hold up or not. Um, let's see. What else do we well, – oh, the, 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 the felony too, whether oh, or not sure. the – uh, you want to discuss that? The guy, yeah, range. I can't remember what he range. He was Brian Range. He was applying for food stamps. Food stamps, government yeah. assistance, and purportedly made a misrepresentation on one of the applications. He was in fact convicted. He was uh, convicted, right? Of course, well, that's another. Was... <laughs> that's another. That's another uh, topic for another day. Lots of people plead guilty or are convicted uh, who are not in fact guilty. Yeah, uh, you can. You can see my skepticism. Even after somebody's convicted, I'm still skeptical about whether they're actual, actually, in fact, yeah. guilty. Of Even where they plead guilty. Yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. a topic anyway. for another another day. Uh, so he was convicted of a nonviolent crime. That's the that's the gist here. Uh, and it was with respect to this welfare assistance program. And his case, uh, Brian Range, has been accepted by the Supreme Court for review. It was set for conference, but it's yet to be calendared by the Supreme Court. And it'll be interesting to see what they do with this case because they could take it up at the same time as Rahimi. So they, they may decide both cases in one opinion uh, rather than addressing just Rahimi specifically and then range separately. I think they'll probably want some cohesive uh, analysis of both cases, but we don't know yet what they're going to do with range. It hasn't been set for or, uh, oral argument yet, uh, but it'll be interesting what they do with that one. And then the other one you mentioned is the bump stock case. That's the Cargill case out of the Fifth Circuit, which is actually based in Louisiana, but it's uh, a lot of the cases come from Texas, which is also part of the Fifth Circuit. In that case, uh, basically the, the ATF has said that firearm, and this is in, in the wake of the uh, mass killing in, in Las Vegas uh, several years ago during the, the Trump administration, of course, when, when Trump uh, basically gave away bump stocks, uh, it, a lot of people speculate as a compromise so that something worse wouldn't happen. But nevertheless, the ATF is basically saying semi-automatic firearms equipped with a bump stock turn them into machine guns, which are regulated under the National Firearms Act, uh, among other federal laws. So, which is contrary to a previous decision that they had made about. Right. And and it basically flies in the face of the, the definition, the general definition of a machine gun, which is that the firearm 
will fire more than one cartridge with a single press of the trigger. Okay. A semi-automatic will only fire one cartridge at a time, one projectile at a time with a single press of the trigger. And a bump stock doesn't change that. Uh, so that's that's the issue in that case going before the Supreme Court. Uh, what else, Mike, you want to chat about? Well, I think, too, another thing. So we're kind of talking about where we've been and where we kind of expect the Supreme Court to make some decisions here in this coming – this year, 20, what, 2024, when mm -hmm. folks listen to this. Hopefully, we'll get some decision with respect to the pistol brace rule, too. Mm -hmm. We won't go into that, but hopefully we'll get some decisions on that. But also, I want to talk about what is happening to folks a couple of instances here in Illinois and California as of January 1st. And these are cases, I don't know that we'll get a decision from the Supreme Court in 2024. I can't promise we'll get a decision from the Supreme Court at all about these cases, but um, I certainly don't know if we'll get one in 2024. It may be early 2025 before we get decisions. But they're, the states of Illinois and California are up to their traditional um, tyranny um, a, a complete contravention, I think, to the uh, Bruin decision made by the Supreme Court. They're just snubbing their nose. Uh, and sometimes I wonder if these states – it's it's so frustrating. I think to myself, do they have any good faith basis to believe that this is in – that their actions are in conformity with decisions from the Supreme Court? Or are they just simply – know this is wrong and they're going to just kind of try to overload the court system so that they can in fact infringe, infringe upon this freedom. I don't know what their their motivation is and of course I say they like there's some sort of collective motivation. I'm sure they all all these tyrants have different motivations as to why they do what they do. Yeah, I think so. I I think that you're right there there are various motivations, but I know that there are at least some groups that are trying to delay to basically trying to keep in place these uh, violations of our individual rights and the, and the Constitution until there's a change in the composition of the Supreme Court. Uh, at least that's their hope that sometimes that at some point in the near future, the Supreme Court composition will change in favor of less individual freedom. Yeah. So let's just talk about what we're what's going on now in California a little bit. And I, I, I don't have the law memorized. I looked at it and it's a long, vague um, difficult to understand law. I don't think even the most, the, even the brightest legal scholars with regard to the Second Amendment are completely clear about what it says or doesn't say. Uh, but in any event, essentially what they're doing is remember, we talked about Bruin. Uh, it said, hey, you, it talked about uh, you've got a right to keep and bear arms, meaning carry in public for self defense purposes. Uh, and what this California law has done, and this is not Mike just talking, this is, uh, I'm going to, I can read something from the U.S. District Court judge who made an initial decision about this case, he granted a preliminary injunction blocking the law, okay? And he wrote that this is, the law was a sweeping, repugnant, a sweeping and repugnant to the Second Amendment and openly defiant of the Supreme Court. And I certainly concur with that. There are like 26 places where you can't carry a gun. He says, I agree, that essentially what this does is it makes it illegal to carry a firearm in public. OK, even if you own a private business, you cannot carry your firearm there unless you put a sign up saying it's permissible to carry a firearm here. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially what this does is do away with uh, yeah. the bearing portion of the Second Amendment in yeah. California. And it does some other things too, making it harder to get permits and, you know, some other uh, things that, it, that infringe upon the Second Amendment. Well, there's a few good points there. Uh, number one. 
this law was a brew. It's it's one of these so-called Bruin response bills where uh, these tyrannical governors and legislatures in various states around the country have said, okay, Supreme Court, uh, you've said that there's not only a right to keep a, a firearm in your home, but there's also a right to bear arms in public. And of course, that's in accordance with the, it's not something the Supreme Court made up. The Second Amendment says uh, that there's a right to keep and bear arms. And a common rule of constitutional interpretation is that it's called this rule against surplusage, where two words might have the same meaning, but the they included the two words. You should assume that they don't have the same meaning or else it would have been superfluous. It would have been double saying the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. And so where keep and bear might mean the same thing in isolation, they don't historically, if you do a review, but if assuming that they might, uh, you should assume that they don't because they're included together to keep and bear arms. So to keep arms in your own home, own home for self-defense, um, and then to bear, like you said, means to carry, and that means to carry in public. Well, states like California basically said, okay, well, since there's a right to carry in public, uh, guess what we're going to do? We're going to make basically every place you might go off limits, a so-called sensitive place. And so the court, like we talked about in with Bruin and then subsequently with Rahimi, will have to analyze whether these sensitive places meet that text history or tradition standard, because they clearly, these prohibitions clearly implicate the Second Amendment. So are there historical analogs that would support the government prohibition on these sensitive, so-called sensitive places? Yeah. So if you're a California citizen, and let's assume you have their license to carry a handgun. I think that's what – or license to carry. I'm not sure what they call it, a permit. Um, essentially, you can't leave – you're going to have to make a decision about whether you're going to leave your gun at home or whether you're going to carry it and probably violate the law there. Because with the exception of a few sidewalks and roads, virtually the entire public arena is off limits to you, and you'll be committing some sort of crime if you carry there. Um, I, I got a little quote from – um, California Carry, which is an organization out in California fighting the fight in that state. Um, and one of the things they said that I'll just read from it, uh, you're responsible for your own safety. California has shown it is utterly hostile to your civil right to self-defense and the courts will not grant you redress from your grievances. Remind me to come back and talk about where we're at with the court process there too. At your own legal risk, carry everywhere, everywhere you won't be caught. California has abrogated any semblance of fairness, and thus you have no moral obligation to obey an intolerable and dangerous law. Um, and I'm not, I'm not endorsing you, – you, you're an American. Do what you need to do um, as far as giving a legal opinion is concerned here. But it's almost come to the point where um, you may have a moral responsibility to disregard the law in my estimation. Uh, I'm not telling people to do that. I'm just saying it's something that I think philosophically we need to discuss. And I know in the past you, you do better job of this than I do. There are laws that are, um, uh, malum in se, meaning they're just wrong. The 10, I always think about the 10 commandments, thou shall not murder, steal. Um, and then there are laws that are, uh, what we call malum prohibitum. They're not morally repugnant in any way it's just some authority the king has said thou shall not do this um you can't sell a car on a sunday in indiana okay it can't dealership can't be open um you can't drive more than five miles you can't drive over the speed limit of 55 it's not morally wrong to drive 56 but it's against the law 
Um, but it's almost getting to the point um, where you may have an obligation, in my estimation, to seriously consider whether you're obligated morally to disregard the laws from these tyrants. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, there was a, uh, if you're interested in a discussion of these sorts of things, I'll, I'll certainly talk about it in a future episode. I talked about it a little bit during my episode about the 10th amendment. Uh, I don't remember which episode that was, but if I, uh, if I remember, I'll link to that in the show notes, but there was this discussion at the time of the founding, whether it, it was in the Federalist Papers, it was in a lot of the debates, uh, it was in uh, many of the letters that were uh, sent during the ratifying convention and, and, uh, and around the ratifying conventions in, in the various states. And there was this debate about at what point people had an obligation to disregard the law because it wasn't considered law if it was – uh, against the Constitution, if it was in violation of the Constitution, that, that there's this quote, this famous quote that says basically any act against the Constitution is void, and so it wasn't considered law, and you had an obligation to disregard it. And the question is, where is that today? Well, the the question, but the on the other hand, this is what I struggle with, and I, maybe I shouldn't answer, ask open-ended questions, violation of what lawyers are supposed to do. But on the other hand, I'm not a sovereign citizen. I don't advocate for that today, that we all ought to go out there and completely disregard every law. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure where you draw the line with regard to this discussion. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I, like I said, I'll, I'll discuss that in a future episode. But in the meantime, if you're interested in more discussions about that specific topic, I would certainly recommend that you check out the Tenth Amendment Center. That's TenthAmendmentCenter.com. They're active on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, and Michael Bolden is the one behind that project. He he does a great job explaining the history uh, in, in sort of the legal framework here. I think uh, if you're interested in this sort of uh, concept, definitely check that out. Again, that's the Tenth Amendment Center dot com. But these these tyrants are going to do as you'll see an illustration of this in a minute. These tyrants are going to do as much as they can do without inciting any sort of revolt that might. And that revolt could be at the ballot box. It could be in lots of forms. Um, they don't want to incite that sort of revolt so that they stay in power. So they're going to test the limits. And like in Illinois, they're going to pass the Protect Illinois Communities Act, which is, guess what? It's a gun ban statute is what it amounts to. Um, it's, a, it's a regulation of, quote, assault weapons, end quote, in Illinois, uh, which is another topic we're yeah. going to mention but, for 2024. But before we get to that, I want to uh, just stick with California for just okay. a moment, this sensitive places ban. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because the opinion by the district court judge, the oh. lower court judge there, was was excellent. He, he went through all these uh, prescribed sensitive places and basically said why they don't comport with the text, history, and tradition. There is no analogy from the time of the founding or even later history. He even gets into the later history quite a bit. But he breaks down that historical analysis in the opinion and, and does a great job. There are a few quibbles I, I have with the opinion. Uh, for instance, he talks about uh, basically the Constitution as sort of the supreme authority or the sort of the guarantor of rights, which is true, but I think uh, more of a focus on the fact that it really just recognizes an individual right. But just small quibbles. Overall, it was an excellent opinion. And, and essentially, he says, listen, this is not even a close call. This violates the Second Amendment. We'll hear, we'll hear about that as we litigate this case fully. But I am so convinced that this is not even a close call. 
and that ultimately it will be deemed unconstitutional. I'm not going to allow the state of California to enforce this mm-hmm. against the against the citizens of California. Yeah, and 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 one interesting thing too is there was a lot of discussion about basically anywhere where vulnerable people go, the government said could be considered a a prohibited place. So basically, if if elderly people or infirm people might visit a particular place, it was considered a sensitive place, which is almost anywhere. Uh, okay, and so which is also place. absurd. Yeah. If you're a vulnerable person, where's the place that you need to have a gun to protect yourself? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and they, yeah. and the state, who by the way is not going to save you yeah. and has no moral obligation or no legal obligation to do so, is going to make sure that you're disarmed there and as vulnerable as possible. Yeah. And there's almost uh, the other quibble I have with the opinion is that there's some acquiescence that certain places like schools are appropriate sensitive places and and i don't think that's true either or consistent with the text history or tradition of the but second in, amendment but in the judge's defense the district court judge's defense i can't carney is that judge carney's i, I believe so but in, whoever it is whatever his name is i'm sorry judge um if i got that wrong i mean he gets that from the supreme court yeah because there were some there were some compromises at the supreme court where um the more moderate judges had to be placated um, in terms of allowing some of the current laws that we have to maybe stay in place. Some of those laws they wanted to stay in place was this ability to locate certain or to uh, regulate certain, quote, sensitive places, end quote. And that's part of our concern. This is going back to Rahimi, is that the Supreme Court, I think if they are consistent and they adhere to the standard that they laid out in Bruin, they could not uphold some of the the ban- many of the bans. For instance, even shall issue licenses. For instance, but I think that those are things that are going to be uh, upheld. Uh, so I, I, that's the problem: is how much are they going to v- steer away or water down the test that they laid out in Bruin? Yeah, and, and I think they will. The question is how much. Yeah, and and I just want to defend Judge Carney because I think he was doing what he was supposed to do. He was taking the letter of the law that was given to him by the Supreme Court, and he applied it. Yeah. Now, I got quibbles with the Supreme Court in terms of how they sort of yeah. split the baby there. But anyway, that's another story. So the district court judge, the trial court judge in the Ninth Circuit, uh, I think it was the Northern District for California. I can't remember uh, offhand. And I'll link to this opinion in the show notes. But that decision, uh, we weren't sure when it came out what the Ninth Circuit was going to do with it. And there was a little bit of uh, shenanigans going on there. Mike, you want to talk about that? <laughs> Just that I think I think the only thing I can say is it certainly appears from an outsider's standpoint, and other people have addressed this. Um, I think the Ninth Circuit knows what they want the decision to be ahead of time, and administratively they're trying to guide it that way, irrespective of what the litigants have to say and yeah. what the litigation produces in terms of reasoned arguments. Yeah. So the district court's judge, while it was good, was a temporary victory, and it will. It will have to be more than likely uh, decided by the Supreme Court before Californians get any real relief here. Yeah, because the the Ninth Circuit, at least for now, and it could change in a month or two, but as of now, they said, hey, Judge Carney's uh, injunction to preclude the enforcement of this new law that was supposed to take effect on January 1st of 2024, we're not going to keep it from becoming effective. Now, they may change their mind. I got my doubts they will. But for now, that law has been going to become effective despite Judge Carney's decision. And keep in mind, that's still not a 
a decision on the merits of this case out of the Ninth Circuit that's got to go through that process. We'll get a decision there, and then it'll get appealed to the Supreme Court. But for now, if you're in California, you're going to have to decide what you want to do uh, yeah. because I'm based upon my research, um, it's going to be very, very difficult, even if you're a licensed uh, uh, person, it be difficult for you to carry in public, not violate the law. Very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to wait? Are you going to comply or, uh, and are you going to wait for the Supreme Court to protect your individual liberty or are you, are you going to exercise your rights uh, despite the possibility, the risk of potential prison time uh, for violation of of these tyrannical uh, acts, I won't even call them laws, uh, acts by uh, the government of California. Yeah. So uh, with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about Illinois. What's yeah. going on in Illinois? We may with not the, get to safety today. We have with to do the, that next week. With the so-called assault weapons ban. Yeah, here's another act of tyranny by a state legislature and a governor. Essentially what it is is, is a, I always hate the word assault weapon because I don't know what it is. Uh, neither do they. It's just a political term. But there's this assault weapons ban and a magazine capacity ban that's occurring in uh, Illinois. It also bans some parts as well. Um, but it, the courts there, uh, despite what I think, I'm kind of like Judge Carney out in California, I think uh, this is clearly a violation of the Second Amendment. It's an affront to the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Bruin. Uh, but despite the clear, in my mind, violation of the Second Amendment that this law perpetrates, um, it's going to stay in effect, at least for now. Um, and in Illinois, if by... January 1st, 2024, you haven't gone online. I think they call it an affidavit. You haven't basically registered your, quote, assault rifle or assault weapon, end quote. Um, you're going to be in violation of this law. Yeah. Um, and you could be, I think, I, I would need to look it up, but for sure again, but I think it's probably going to be a whatever their highest level of misdemeanor is. I don't know if it's a, mis a misdemeanor or a, a one. A, House. Level one, it's maybe it's imprisonment of up to one year and then some sort of fine um, if you're in found to be in violation of this. Um, but it's going to take effect. Yeah, uh, it has taken effect. Um, and and this is an arms ban. So we've been talking a lot about places and people. So who and where are off limits, according to these tyrannical governments under the Second Amendment. But this is a, a what case yeah um, but 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 this is one though when i was talking about they're going to go to the very edge where they think they're not going to incite complete revolt against and they're still going to get, remain in power um i mean you're going to get to keep them i mean i hate to say it, that sounds awful for me to say that you're going to get to you're right? going to get to the, the the king is going to let you keep them if you already own they're, them they're going to let you keep your own property yeah what a privilege what great tyrants yeah um they're going to let you keep them as long as you register them and of course they want you to register them because they have full intentions to actually confiscate them at some mm -hmm. point in time um but you're not going to be able to buy them and it's going to be very difficult to sell them in the future. Like you'll only be able to sell them to an FFL or somebody out of state that's going to keep it out of state. So this is one of those things I was talking about there. They go to the very edge um, and hope that they can make this, you know, stay in place in terms of the law not being overturned by the Supreme Court. But it's absolutely awful. I'm looking here at the Illinois Supreme Court. They've got an FAQ here. I'm a lawyer. The FAQ goes down 78. FAQs. I look at the questions, legitimate questions. I look at their answers and go, 
oh, well, that's pretty vague. I wonder if I'm going to go to prison. You know, you just don't, you're not reasonably appraised of what you can and can't do. Um, so I don't know uh, what's going to happen, except I hope, you know, we're talking about the future. This gets to the Supreme Court and it will be determined to be completely unconstitutional. I don't see any justification for it. Even if you, I mean, you, you can't even contort the words in the Supreme Court decisions and make this something that's viable under the Second Amendment. This is the most this is the most popular rifle in America. Um, clearly, something that can't be regular or can't be banned or confiscated. So, um, like it is by Illinois at this juncture. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah. So uh, just sort of in summary here, the Supreme Court very soon is going to have to decide some pretty interesting questions. Who what sorts of people can be prohibited under the Second Amendment? Is it Zaki Rahimi? Is it somebody else? Where's where's the the line in the sand there? Where? What sorts of places can be prohibited under the Second Amendment? What sorts of places are considered sensitive places? So who, where, and what with these assault weapons, uh, so-called assault weapons bans? Uh, and that question, of course, is going to fall under this analysis called the common use test. And clearly here, the AR-15 is the most popular rifle in America. There are more AR-15s uh, in America in the hands of uh, American citizens than there are F-150s on the road, which is the most popular truck in the United States. So clearly, if any firearm meets the definition of a, fire, a firearm or an arm in common use, it's not just firearms, by the way, it's arms uh, in common use, it's the AR-15. So uh, I think clearly... If this case makes it to the Supreme Court, which it should, uh, if it's not this case, another one like it should make it to the Supreme Court, hopefully, uh, if not next term in the fall, uh, so that people in Illinois uh, don't have the risk of criminal conviction, criminal prosecution for the exercise of an individual right. Uh, so to, to keep their property and to keep their the tools that they think uh, are best suited for defense of themselves and their families. I, uh, yeah, it's awful. I mean, folks are going to have to deal with this in Illinois and in California. And I, I read the Illinois state police posts here and they're like, what are you going to do to enforce this? And they're like, we're here to enforce the law. We're going to do what our duty is. We're going to enforce the law. And I think about, you know, we went, we're in Europe this past summer and I was at Buchenwald and, um, Auschwitz, you were at Dachau. Um, those police were enforcing the law there as well. Yeah. Doing their duty, enforcing yeah, the law. Exactly. So, interesting times, uh, to say to say the least. Uh, but I think, I think that uh, you know you hear a lot of noise on the internet about about a lot of these cases that are circulating around the internet. But it's going to take time. Uh, these are not going to happen instantaneously. Unfortunately, the wheels of justice turn extremely slowly. Uh, and the question for you is going to be whether or not you're going to comply or not. And uh, it, like you said, Mike, at the beginning, there are lots of laws today that uh, I think are pushing the envelope in terms of whether or not people are going to be willing to comply. Yeah, and I think it's um, the Washington gun lawyer. I think his name's William Kirk, K-I-R-K. Maybe you can link to it. Um, he articulated it much better than I can or will. He had a video in the last few days, I think, about compliance with the Illinois assault weapons ban and what sort of registration numbers the state police are seeing because they do publish those. Um, 
and essentially his video says very difficult to ascertain what sort of compliance rate that is we have in Illinois because we just don't have the data to make those calculations. But he does some extrapolation, and it looks like it's pretty darn low at this juncture. It was, I think, he speculated, or I don't know, it was speculated. He postulated, I think, that it could be somewhere between six tenths of one percent and maybe five point something percent. But that was just postulating and making a lot of assumptions. But still, well reasoned, well explained by him. I would encourage you to take a look at that. Um, but my point is, it looks like. People are not complying with this law at very high rates in Illinois. Now, I don't know if that's because they've made a conscious decision not to do it or if it's because they don't even know about the law. Um, because I think Illinois, I saw something else in 2024, they passed 300 new laws. I mean, how can we possibly keep up with all of the laws? So it'll be interesting to see what sort of numbers um, come out of Illinois in terms of compliance rates. Yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm sharing the screen here. If you're watching this by video, you can see uh, Washington Gun Law on YouTube. He's got uh, he's got a, a good following, and he puts out some great content. So definitely go check him out. I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, and that's Washington Gun Law, Washington State Gun Law, uh, not Washington D.C. So uh, William Kirk, and I'll link to that again, uh, like I said, in the show notes. Uh, the other thing. I want to just briefly touch on here, and we will have to save the the safety rules for a separate episode. Maybe we'll do a double feature. I'm not sure for for Monday, but uh, okay. we'll do a separate episode either way about the the rules for safe gun handling. But uh, in Illinois, and you talked about how how is Illinois going to enforce this? There's this extremely low compliance rate. Uh, how are they going to enforce this? And I think this is incredibly important. I like to talk about it anytime I get the opportunity. We talk. Uh, we've talked about previously this notion of anti-commandeering, which doesn't really apply with the with respect to the enforcement of state law. But I want to talk about how it's related. Uh, so anti-commandeering is this notion that the federal government cannot co-opt state and local government officials to enforce federal law. So uh, the the ATF can't come in and say state police of Indiana or state police of whatever state. We want you, we have to, we need your help to enforce our bump stock ban. Uh, they can't compel the state police to do that or any other state or local official to do that. They And the reality is the federal government doesn't have the enforcement personnel to enforce those laws nationwide. But they do it. And how do they do it? They do it with the power of the purse. Yes. With money. Uh, so they basically bribe state and local officials into to assisting with the enforcement of their tyrannical acts. Uh, now, with that said, that doesn't apply at the state level, but there is a related movement, and we talked about this before, the sanctuary movement or the constitutional sheriff movement. And I think that's really important to point out because mm -hmm. that's why it's so, these your local elections are incredibly important, not only as a, a, a shield against tyrannical federal action, but also as a shield against tyrannical state action. So if the governor, if the legislature in your state, if the state police in your state are willing uh, to enforce tyrannical measures, you need to have local officials who are not and who are willing to say, we're going to stand up to these folks. If they come into our county, if they come into our city, if they come into our town, we are not going to allow them and we are not going to assist them with their 
tyrannical measurements. We are not going to infringe on the citizens of our county uh, and their individual liberties. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. My concern, and I, you know, I think I saw in Illinois there was a sheriff or two, maybe a bunch of sheriffs, I don't know, that say we're not going to enforce this. Well, that's fine, and I I like that. Um, but that doesn't mean they won't change their mind if you're a person that's not like supported them in the election or whatever. So there's there's that, uh, and also it doesn't keep the state police from coming into your county and doing something crazy. Uh, it has limitations. Sometimes there's a lot of friction between the state police and the and your local sheriff potentially. So there are, there are certainly limitations, but part of the point here is that far too many people pay attention to who's going to be elected in the next next yeah. presidential race, which. Yeah. Is important, but less important than who is in, who has, uh, who holds local uh, office. Okay, whether that's your sheriff, whether that's your mayor, whether whoever it is, local elections are far more important than the highest level positions. Change happens from the bottom up, not from the top down. Well, yeah, and I would submit to you, it's not even the sheriff that's important; it's your prosecutor, because if your county prosecutor. Um, is not going to enforce this kind of garbage. It doesn't matter if the state police are going to enforce it. He's not going to take the case and br- and bring charges. Yeah. So that's the guy or gal that I would like to see take a stand with respect to these tyrannical laws and just come out and say, you know, I've got responsibilities to enforce real cl- real crimes against people and property that are malum in se crimes not malum prohibitum crimes as defined by a bunch of bureaucrats in a far, far off state capital, or even worse, a far, far off federal capital. And, and, and their job as, as a sheriff and as a prosecutor is not to the federal government. It's not to the governor uh, or the legislature. It's to the Constitution, uh, to, to the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of whatever state they are in. And generally, these states have analogous protections in their constitution for the individual right to keep and bear arms uh, to the Second Amendment. So uh, be sure you do not overlook these local elections because they are far more important in my estimation than all the things you hear about in the news with respect to these federal elections and uh, shenanigans going on in the federal uh, legislature and judiciary and executive offices. Okay, so Do not overlook your local elections. All right, Mike. Well, I think that's where we'll leave it for now, unless there's anything else you want to wrap up with. Uh, Well, that's where we'll leave it. Sort of a, this has been a sort of a wrap up, a a little bit of a year in review of sorts uh, with respect to the status of various cases going on with regard to the Second Amendment. So, uh, Mike, anything else you want to add? Nope, except don't forget the safety. We'll get back to that in another episode here. Okay. Yeah. Um, So, Look out for that uh, next episode. Uh, we'll talk about the safe rules for gun handling or the rules for safe gu- gun handling, I should say. And uh, in the meantime, uh, if you enjoyed the show, if you learned something, don't forget to like and subscribe. Share it with your friends and family. Uh, it helps us spread the message of freedom. And until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember, 
You are the Forge of Freedom.